You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, the book of Hebrews is a well-crafted word of exhortation. That's what the author calls it. At the end of the book, in chapter 13, he calls this a brief word of exhortation. And he seems to mean by that that it's a, it's a mixture of careful exposition and unpacking of the Old Testament, sort of threaded together with these direct exhortations tailored to his audience's needs and concerns and temptations. So it's this mixture of exposition and exhortation that makes up this book. And thus far, as we've mainly seen exposition, mainly seen unpacking. We've seen Christ's supremacy over the angels, uh, his rule over the cosmos as the perfect man, and his help for sinners as the son who suffers and dies for us. And so in the last two chapters, there's only been one exhortation. It was in chapter two, verse one, when the author says, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. That's the only time he's ever said, this is what you need to do in light of what I've said. But as, the, as this word of exhortation will unfold over the coming weeks and months, you're going to see that as he progresses, he kind of picks up things along the way and then weaves them together and restates them, unpacks them, expresses them in fresh ways. They're amplified and extended. And so some of what I'm going to do today is actually model that. I want to try to pick up some things that we've seen in the previous chapters, as, and not just the previous chapters, last semester as we were in the book of Leviticus, and use them again, combine them perhaps in fresh ways to, to deepen our understanding of God and Christ and what he's done for us, and to call us into the obedience of faith. So as we look in the present passage, um, this, this passage introduces for us a biblical passage, uh, Psalm 95, which will occupy the author for the next two chapters. It's the end of our text today. But the heart of this section is actually the exhortation in the first verse, consider Jesus. In fact, if I were ever going to write a commentary on the book of Hebrews, I think that that's what I would name it. I would call it consider Jesus. Because that's the overarching theme of the book from the opening verses. God has spoken to us by his son to the final chapter. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Again and again, the author invites us to consider Jesus, listen to Jesus, look to Jesus. But, and this is crucial, what he wants us to see about Jesus, what he wants us to consider about Jesus is Jesus in light of what God has done in the past, in light of how God has revealed himself in the Old Testament. So he wants us to have like a rich, full vision of what God has done and what he's promised to do so that we see and consider Jesus in all of his fullness and marvel at his works and at his person. That's part of actually why Uh, As pastors, we chose to preach this book after preaching Leviticus, is we wanted that background to be kind of fresh in your minds from last fall, so that as we turn to consider Jesus, you can see him with new eyes. You'll see things maybe that you've never seen before. 
So looking there in chapter 3, verse 1, the first part of the verse is actually a kind of uh, summary, distillation, condensation. You know, think about a suitcase when you fold up stuff and you make it nice and compact. That's what the author has done here in the opening verse. He addresses his audience for the first time. He says, therefore, holy brothers. And you might think, well, that just seems like a normal way to talk, but it's not. It's, it's not. It's, he's actually drawing from what he's just said in the previous verses. Pastor Jonathan last week noted that Hebrews 2 identifies us in two ways, familially, children of God and brothers and sisters of Christ. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. But we're not just brothers, we're holy brothers. And the reason he says that is it comes from chapter 2, verse 11. It's harder to see in English, but the word for sanctify there, he who sanctifies or makes holy, and those who are sanctified or made holy all have one source. And so what the author's done is as he's sort of unpacked that bit in chapter 2, he kind of grabs it and carries it with him into chapter 3 and says, therefore, holy brothers. But not just holy brothers, the next phrase, you who share in a heavenly calling. Well, what's that? Well, if we again think about where we've been, this heavenly calling is what he's mentioned in the first two chapters. God is bringing many sons to glory. Look there in verse, chapter 2, verse 10. Or he intends for man to be crowned with glory and honor. Chapter 2, verse 7 and verse 9. He is subjecting the world to come to human beings. Chapter 2, verse 5. This is our heavenly calling. And going forward in the letter, he's actually going to unpack it in other ways. He's going to bring in terms like Sabbath rest as a part of that heavenly calling. And the city that's to come, that's a part of the heavenly calling. And a heavenly country, that's a part of the heavenly calling. And the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so he's gonna keep kind of grabbing things as he works through and building up a fuller and richer vision of what it is that we're called to. And this is actually a really good opportunity to kind of summarize, bring together a few items from the last few weeks and then connect them to Leviticus. So let's, this is kind of a, a sanctified imagination moment so that we can really consider Jesus. So a few weeks ago, Pastor Kenny noted that God created man with a heavenly destiny. That's heavenly calling. In other words, in creating man, you remember he made us lower than the angels for a little while. Lower than the angels. So God, angels, man, beasts was sort of the order as God originally created it. But Pastor Kenny noted that God intended for us to sort of rise, to ascend to not stay lower than the angels, but to eventually be placed over the angels. And he used a staircase analogy to kind of describe that, that image. And I was sitting right there, and I thought, there's literally a staircase right in front of my face. This is great. Okay, so I just want you to take a minute, and I want you to, to get this in your head. And this is also bringing in some of what we saw in Leviticus last fall. Um, this room can help you orient, orient you to what our heavenly calling is. So imagine that behind me is the summit of a mountain or the top of the staircase. Or if we want to uh, uh, bring in uh, Leviticus, it's the Holy of Holies where God dwells, if you remember from last fall. So up there at the top, that's the throne room. That's, the, that's where God's presence is. And now, where I'm standing is the realm of the holy angels, Okay, so up there on top is God's throne. Here's the angels, and then you can imagine down there is where God created man, and he made us a little lower than the angels. Okay, 
but he intends for man to eventually come from down there to up there. That's the plan in Genesis chapter 1. He intends for us to go from there to there. And perhaps the angels were meant to help us. To, we were, we're meant to ascend the holy hill, to enter the holy place. And so, uh, but th- that's, the, that's the plan, but then man stumbles on the stairs. Like we start to come up the stairs and we trip and we fall and we fall and we can't get up. We're down there now and that destiny seems to be destroyed. There's no way up the mountain. In fact, the way up the mountain is now blocked by those same angels wielding flaming swords to keep us out. We can't ascend the hill of the ward. And so now here's the picture of Hebrews. God the Son back there leaves his throne and he descends and he's made a little lower than the angels for a little while. He partakes of flesh and blood, chapter 2, verse 14. He's made like his brothers in every respect. He shares our full humanity and endures suffering and death. Why? So that we can climb the stairs. So he comes down, assumes a human nature, and then he ascends and he's seated at the, after he's done his work, he's seated at the right hand of God, and now we have access back there. We can come up the stairs. We can draw near to the throne of grace. That's the movement. Christ shares our flesh and blood so that we can share his heavenly calling. In doing this, chapter 2, Jesus becomes our merciful and faithful high priest, dealing with our sin so that we can ascend the holy hill and enter the holy place. It's not angels that he helps to do this, it's us. And therefore, the author of Hebrews says, in light of that heavenly calling to move from down here to up there, He says, to Christ's holy brothers, he gives us an exhortation. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's an apostle because he was sent with a message, a message of a great salvation from there down to here. And he speaks to us. In these last days, he's spoken by his son. So Christ is an apostle sent with a message to us. And he's also a high priest faithful in the service of God. He's bringing many sons to glory through his suffering and death. And that language of high priest here in chapter 3 jumps back to chapter 2, verse 17. You can see it there. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. And this is going to be something that the author is going to dwell upon for a big chunk of the letter. If you you were to jump forward into chapter 4, look in chapter 4, verse 14, just real quick. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's here. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That echoes chapter 2. That's, he's amplifying and picking that thread up there in chapter 4. And he's going to continue it into chapter 5. He's going to come back to it again in chapter 7. But at this point in chapter 3, the word that he picks up on is actually the word faithful. See there in 2.17, he's a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Down chapter 3, verse 2, he's a high priest of our confession who was faithful. You see that? That's the connection. That's the thread that he's going to keep working over. And that word, faithful, for our author, invites a comparison to Moses. And you might think, how come? That's weird. Why why does the word faithful, 
lead him to think, now I got to talk about Moses. Well, the answer is really simple. And to see it, you're going to have to jump back with me into the Old Testament. So I want you to take your Bible and let's turn to Numbers chapter 12. Okay, so we'll turn back to Numbers chapter 12. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, God says, Moses is faithful in all my house. See that? Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, Moses is faithful in all my house. It's actually quoted, not directly, but it's alluded to in, chapter, in Hebrews 3. That's why the word faithful is here. It shows up in Hebrews 3 four times. And the word house or household is emphasized seven times in that short little compact verse. So faithful in house. Where did that come from? It came from Numbers chapter 12. The author wants us to consider Jesus in light of Numbers chapter 12. Okay, well, why would we want to go there? Well, in this section of Scripture, Numbers 12, the people have set out from Mount Sinai, and they're going through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And um, they're already sick of manna, okay? They're sick of magic bread from heaven, got old, if you can imagine it, right? Every day you wake up and you have all the food you need for the day, and you're like, hmm, I'm kind of over it. And so they begin to grumble and complain, and they complain that they have no meat, and so then God sends them quail until it comes out their ears, and he sends them a plague as a discipline for their grumbling, and then it's at that moment, that moment after they've complained, after they've got the quail, and after God has sent a plague, that Moses' siblings basically kind of stage a coup. They attempt to sort of kind of wrestle control of the people from Moses. This is Numbers chapter 2. And they use as a pretext the fact that Moses has married a Cushite, a non-Israelite. They, they take aim at his wife. And so they say in chapter 2, they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Like, can't, Mo, can't God speak through us too? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting, right? So you can, this is like dad saying, hey, you three, knock it off. Come on, we're going to go have a talk. And the three of them came out and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and he called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forward and he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision, I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed." So they got a, a, a rebuke here from God because most normally prophets get dreams and visions, kind of cloudy, riddle-like. What does it mean? You have to kind of interpret it. And God's like, with Moses, though, he's faithful in all my house. I do face-to-face with him. He sees the form of the Lord. I'm, he comes into the glory cloud, and I give it to him direct. Why were you not afraid to speak against him? And the point of the passage is that Moses is special. He doesn't just send him dreams and visions at a distance. And then as a result of this complaint, the text goes on to say that Miriam is struck with leprosy for seven days. 
And she's only healed because Moses prays for her. He intercedes on her behalf. Now, before we return to see how that passage then shapes Hebrews 3, I just want to insert a little parenthesis here about how this book, this author, wants us to read the Old Testament. Okay, because he's going to keep doing this. He keeps sending us back to your Old Testament. Like if you actually want to study this book, you have to look, you have to have a book, one with footnotes and you have to be able to flip back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to understand what he's talking about. Because often he just quotes a verse and you're like, I don't see what that had to do with this. Because you don't know it. We don't know it as well as he did. So here's, here's an example. The end of the passage today in, in Hebrews 3 is Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is actually a reflection, a meditation on Numbers 13 and 14. That's interesting. We're in Numbers 12, here with Moses is faithful in all God's house. But Psalm 95 is looking back at Numbers 13 and 14 and is reflecting on that event. And we're going to explore more of what he does with that passage in the coming weeks, but for now, I just want you to see how he reads his Old Testament. Here's the simple statement I want you to have in your mind for the rest of this book. This author reads Moses through prophetic eyes. He reads Moses through prophetic eyes. And what I mean by that is is this. You, You know that your Old Testament, Hebrew Old Testament, is divided into three major sections. The law, the prophets, and the writings. The law is the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah. The prophets includes the historical books as well as all of the major prophets and the minor prophets. And then the writings is Psalms and some of the smaller scrolls like Ecclesiastes and Job and things like that. Law, prophets, writings is the basic division. Now the Torah, that law, those first five books is foundational. They tell the story of creation and the fall and God's promises to Abraham and the deliverance from Egypt and the giving of the law, the establishing of tabernacle worship. That's foundation. But then the prophets and the writings always look back to those foundational events and they see in those foundational events a pattern and a promise. So the prophets look back to the Torah And then they see a pattern, and then they project that pattern into the future in the form of a promise. So the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law, sets the pattern, and the prophets take up the pattern and then extend it into the future as a promise. That's how this author reads his Old Testament. And you've already seen an example of this. You may not have realized it. So when we were doing that bit about Psalm 8, a little lower than the angels, Psalm 8, that's in the writings, and it's a reflection on Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So, so the, it's like, if, if you have a little timeline, you're over here, and you're looking back at Genesis 1, but what are you looking through? You're looking through the Psalms. You're looking through the prophets. This author wants you to read about this event through what happened in between, through the Psalms. It's the same thing that he's doing here in Numbers. He says, I want you to look back at Numbers chapter 14, 13 and 14, but I want you to do it through Psalm 95. You're going to see this again and again in this book. Uh, He's going to draw attention to the Levitical priesthood. That's back in Leviticus, Numbers. But then he's going to read that in light of Psalm 110 and the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he says, look, what happens here in the Psalms affects how you should understand what was happening in Leviticus. 
He's going to talk about the same thing with old covenant sacrifices. That's Leviticus. And he says, I want you to read those in light of new covenant promises in Jeremiah. So again, I'm just, I'm, this is preview of coming attractions. I just want you to develop a habit that this author is going to always point you back to the Old Testament. And it's going to be something in the law and something in the prophets. And you read the law through the prophets. So here's a recommendation. What, what, what should you do with that now? For next week, here's what I would recommend. Okay, we're going to pick up here in uh, Hebrews 3. But I, I suggest that over the course of this week, you go read Numbers 13 and 14. Just go spend some time reading that passage, reflecting on that passage. It's the story of when they send the spies into the land. You probably maybe remember this vaguely. They send the spies into the land of Canaan. Ten spies come back with a report and say, there's giants, there's fortified cities, we can't do it, let's go home, let's go back to Egypt. Okay? Joshua and Caleb are the faithful spies, and they say, look, God's with us, they don't have any protection, we can totally do this, God is on our side. And then the people side with the ten, not the two, they rebel, they refuse, and so God threatens to wipe them all out. Moses intercedes based on God's character and his name. God pardons them in response to Moses, but he still brings consequences. And he says this in chapter 14, I have pardoned according to your word, Moses, but truly as I live and as all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, None of them shall see the land I swore to give to their fathers. None of those who despised me shall see it. They will all fall in the wilderness. Now that's what Psalm 95 is talking about. So go read that passage, reflect on it, and be prepared to come so that you can read, you can hear next week, Numbers 14 through prophetic eyes. All right. Now with that, let's go back to Hebrews 3 in the present passage. In this passage, building on Numbers 12, the author wants us to see a comparison and a contrast between Jesus and Moses. That's the basic thing he's doing in chapter 3, is a comparison and contrast between Jesus and Moses having something to do with God's house. And actually, this comparison fits the pattern for a surprising reason. Well, maybe not surprising. Maybe you've picked up on it. So I've, I've already noted how Numbers is there. That's something from the Torah. Is there anything from the prophets, either from the historical books or from the Psalms, that would help us to interpret what happened in Numbers 12? And the answer is yes. He's already quoted it once. He quoted it in the last chapter. He quoted 2 Samuel 7. Okay, in, second, in chapter 1, <clears throat> the author did this. He says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, this is a quote from the Davidic promise, God promises to David. Here's the larger section of that text in 2 Samuel 7. Listen carefully. This is God to David. He says, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, do you hear the same themes from that passage here in Hebrews? Look back at Hebrews now, okay? Hebrews chapter 3, read it again. Listen for the faithful house, or the, the house language, the building language. 
Uh, Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. That's, he, that's Numbers 12. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So here's what the author's doing. Is he's, he sees a comparison here. The comparison is both Jesus and Moses were faithful. They both had a task, they both had a calling, they both had a mission, and both of them were faithful. Moses was appointed, he was faithful. Jesus was appointed, he was faithful. But this is the key thing. There's also a major contrast between the two of them. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. How, why? Well, because the builder of the house gets more honor than the house itself, and Jesus is the builder of the house. Moses is a servant in the house. Moses is not the builder of the house. Jesus is the builder of the house. He's not just part of the house. That's, that's why this sort of proverbial saying, look, every house is built by someone. Like, you got a house, somebody built it. But the builder of all things is God. Jesus, the Son of God, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of the nature of God is the builder of the house. And therefore, if Moses is just part of the house and Jesus is the builder of the house, Jesus has more glory than Moses. But still, Moses was faithful in God's house. But what was his role? Well, here he's called a servant. The interesting thing about that word servant, it's not the normal New Testament word for servant. In fact, in the New Testament, this is the only time it's used, and it's applied to Moses. And it does so, I think, because in the Old Testament, the main person who's called the servant, the main title actually given to Moses throughout the Old Testament is the servant of the Lord. So here's a couple of texts. Exodus 14. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Later in Deuteronomy, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen, Psalm 105. And it, again and again in the Old Testament, Moses' title is, he's the servant, he's the servant, he's the servant. And then the, what the author of Hebrew goes, well, but Jesus isn't the servant. Merely, he's the son. And the son is higher than the servant. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, 2 Samuel 7. And the son is greater than the servant. His name is more excellent than the servant, just as his name is more excellent than the angels, those ministering spirits sent out to serve. So that's the basic picture of, of, of uh, Hebrews 3. Similarity, they're both faithful, but one is faithful as a son over God's house, the other is a servant within God's house. But what's the house? Well, he's pretty clear about what the house is. He looks around at his audience and he says, guys, we're the house. We are the house. And there's a double meaning kind of that term house. Sometimes when we say house, we mean a building, a physical structure. 
Bible uses the word house that way too. It's what the temple or the tabernacle is. It's the house of God. So house could mean physical structure, but also house means something like household, meaning a people, a group of people. And so Moses was a part of the people. Jesus also a part of the people. He partook of the same things. He became like his brothers, but he's more than just a part of the people. He's over the people. He's over God's house. Okay, so that's the basic exposition. That's, that's what he's doing here. Now, what, would we, what should we do with it? Okay, what, what does that have to say to us now, not in the first century, but in the 21st? Here's two things. The first is real simple. We need to be God's house. We need to think of ourselves as God's household. We are his house. We are his household. And, and we should labor in our own minds to build our own households into God's household, meaning our own individual personal households ought to be connected to, oriented to, governed and guided by the household of God. We are his house. And, and you do that, you do that building, remembering what it says here, the builder of all things is God. Or as the psalmist would say, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Like if you're going to try to build something, if you're going to try to build your house, or if you're going to try to build this house, meaning this church, unless God is the builder behind your building, your efforts will be fruitless. But if God's efforts are behind your efforts, if you're serving in the strength that he supplies, your efforts are not vain. They're fruitful. God is calling each of us to be faithful in our house and in his house to build our house and to build his house and to do so in the strength he supplies. So here would be a good prayer. This is what I took from this, this passage this week from my own heart was a, was a prayer. And it was just simp- simply this. Father, would you make me faithful like Moses in all of your house? Like, would you make me humble and meek like Moses in all of your house? Would you help me to build my own house in imitation of your house? Would you help me to make my house like your house? So husbands, could you pray that for yourself? That God would strengthen you to establish your house in the Lord? Like wives, would you pray something like the wise woman of Proverbs 14? God, empower me to build up my house and not tear it down, Proverbs 14.1. Kids, you could pray this. You could say, God, I wanna be faithful In my house and in your house, oh God, would you make me faithful in your house? Make me like Moses. If you're unmarried, you could pray, God, I would love to build my house as well, even now to be faithful in your house. And so this is the heart of the first sort of thing that we can take. We are his house. We're his household, his people. And he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Now, how do you do that? Well, here in this passage, we're given one sort of crucial element. Look there in verse six. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if, you see that? If. You're his house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, this is the call to perseverance. It's one of the main themes of this letter. And if you just jump down to verse 14 for next week, you're gonna see an echo and amplification of this. We share in Christ 
If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, you hear the echo there? Just a repetition, different words. And this isn't easy. You know this, right? Like beginning things is often pretty easy. There's an excitement and a thrill and a new work and let's get going. And so you dive in because you're starting. Finishing is hard. Finishing is hard. So it's one thing, so you think building, like you go out to build something, you're gonna go build a shed in your backyard, or you're gonna, maybe you're gonna build a house, and it's like, man, you go out there to start, and you're like, man, I got energy for this. I'm in, I've got, I've got a confidence. Look at the thing we're gonna build, look at my plans. That's easy. What's hard is finishing. It's hard to hold fast that original confidence until the building is complete. And so, you're his house, if you hold that confidence, if you don't quit. Now, in this audience, here's the temptation. Here was the temptation of that first century audience. Surrounded as they were by um, Judaism, by the Jewish sacrificial system, their temptation was to abandon Jesus and return to Judaism. That's part of why he's emphasizing Jesus is greater than Moses, because they're tempted to go back to Moses. They're, they're wanting to kind of fall back into Moses and Jesus like, he's just a servant. Stay with the son. Consider the son. Go back to the sacrificial system. Go back to the temple. Go back to the Levitical priesthood. That's the temptation for this original audience. One way to think about this is that the background noise in the first century was second temple Judaism. Okay? Judaism that was oriented to God's temple in, in Jerusalem. So if they were going to drift, if they were just kind of go with the flow of the cultural environment they were in, they were going to drift back into Judaism. And he's saying, don't do that. Hold fast your confidence. Pay much more careful attention to what you've heard lest you drift. Now, in our day, that's not your temptation. I don't think there is a single person in this room who is like, man, I might drift back into Judaism. I might start sacrificing some animals. I don't know. It could happen. Like, none of you are tempted to fall into that. And so here's the question for us. What's the background noise? What's the the thing into which we will drift? Because we're tempted to loosen our grip. Now, this Thursday at the North Church, formerly North Campus at Bethlehem, I'm going to be given a a lecture called Puddleglum's Faith. And the main, with C.S. Lewis's help, my main goal is to describe the modern background noise. What's the modern background noise that that causes us to drift from Christ and fall asleep and get put under a spell? And so I just want to invite you there for a fuller exposition of what our modern background noise might be. And if if you struggle with doubts in particular, special invitation, if you struggle with doubts or if maybe you know someone who does and want to help them, special invitation to you to come on Thursday and we'll talk about the modern background noise. But for now, what I want to close with is how can we be God's house by holding fast to our confidence? What, what does it mean? What's the main exhortation? And the answer is you cling to Jesus. You consider Jesus. And that brings us to the table. The word consider here is contemplate, meditate, fix your attention on. It's, it's a focus word. It's a not eyes all over the place. It's a get focused like that. And the author takes us to Psalm 95 and he quotes the last few verses. I want to actually quote the first 
part of it as a way of focusing our attention on who Jesus is. Here's what he says. Oh, come, this is Psalm 95. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let's come into his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. His hand, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The exhortation there is twofold. Come worship, come bow down, come sing, come make a joyful noise, and then two truths undergird it. He's a great God, a great king above all gods, maker of heaven and earth. Like, so when you think about Jesus, you ought to think as high as you can go and as low as you can go. Like the greatness and vastness, as well as like the detail. Like you should just marvel at like galaxies and then like molecules. Like from, because from one end to the other, that's his. He made it. And you ought to be, you, we ought to be marveling at the God who did all of that. And then, without, without losing sight of that, you go, he's our God? We're his sheep? He cares for us? He wants to help us? He's doing all of that, and he has attention for me today, now, with my burdens and struggles? That's what it means to consider Jesus, to marvel at who he is. And at this table each week, we're invited to consider Jesus in his suffering, his death, and in his triumph and his life. So pray with me and come and welcome to Jesus. Father, we do want to consider Jesus. We want to understand him more fully. We want to approach your throne and climb the stairs because, Jesus, you've invited us to ascend the hill of the Lord in your name. And so, Lord, as we eat and drink this meal together, would you nourish and strengthen us with grace? Would you impart it to us in the trials and struggles that we endure, the sufferings and afflictions that we have, the temptations and doubts which haunt our imaginations? Would you help us to cling and to hold fast, to hold fast our original confidence, to cling to Christ? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Invite the pastor to come for the bread. It's gluten free, as always. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.